Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. I'm joined today by Tom Morgan from Franklin, New York. He's the author of five books, including Trial in Cooperstown, which tells the story of a small-town murder trial in the village of Cooperstown in 2004. It's a fascinating look at the ins and outs of a murder trial, giving us a rare bird's-eye view of the entire proceedings and behind-the-scenes conversations with the major players. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Crystal. So tell us about this book. Well, I live not too far from Cooperstown, about an hour south of Cooperstown in a village called Franklin. And I was called on jury duty uh, for a trial of a, um, someone accused of manslaughter, a gentleman. Uh, and the trial was going to be in Cooperstown. So I showed up, I was in the jury pool and I went through all of the procedures uh, that, that uh, trial people go through to select the jury. And I just missed out. And I was disappointed because I'd never been on a jury and I wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to experience that. So I thought, well, I'll do the second best. I've got five days free. I'll stay and watch the trial. I'd never seen a trial. And uh, so I was, I got very much caught up in it. And it was an intriguing trial. Um, so I took a lot of notes and I got to talk to a lot of people. And I talked to the defense attorney and talked to the prosecutor and talked to the family of the man accused, uh, talked to the family of the woman who had, uh, been killed, who he was accused of killing. Um, and I blended in, you know, local um, uh, information or color, because I'm very familiar with Cooperstown, uh, and put it all together in, in the book, Trial in Cooperstown. How long did it take to write the book? It took quite a while, um, well over a year. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't do it right away. I did some work on it and set it aside and then took it up again later. It takes a long time to read through the transcript of a five-day trial. And uh, of course, I've only used part of the transcript, but a good amount of the transcript appears in the book, um, along with my various descriptions and observations and uh, um, pieces of color, etc. But it took uh, well over a year to put together. And uh, it's, it, interestingly, as I, as I read the transcript of the trial uh, in the presentation of all of the evidence, uh, I still, you know, some, sometimes I think, ah, oh, yes, they came to the proper verdict. And then other times I think, no, I'm not so sure they did. So I haven't, you know, every time I reread the transcript, which is quite, it's like reading a novel. I, uh, I tend to come to a different conclusion. I One of the things that intrigued me about this book is is kind of the, I guess, the style it's written in. So I read a lot of true crime. I read a lot of, you know, I'm fascinated by court stuff. I did get to serve on a jury many years ago that wound up being a four-month-long case and have been fascinated wow. ever since. Wow. Oh. Um, and this book, it's not I want to say it's not your traditional kind of true crime. This is very much a chronicle of a trial and not necessarily focused on the people as much as, you know, they're part of it, but it's so detailed. It's so present tense. 
And was was that kind of snapshot of the trial from beginning to end what you wanted to do with this? Yes, really it was. And in fact, I wrote it in the present tense uh, and, and, and did so because um, I, it, it's, in some ways it is sensational because trials are sensational, especially manslaughter or murder trials. By their nature, they have a sensational side to them. And this one did as well. But I was, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that this, although it's, just, it's got its sensational elements, is, is well, it's, 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 it's got an ordinariness to it at the same time. This is life. This is life in the raw, but this is life that we have all around us. Uh, and, and, and it is being transmitted to us in this instance through one of our great institutions, the trial by jury, um, which is very much an American institution. And um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to explore some of that. And I think I've, I've done that in recording this. Uh, having said that, it's, it's a good story, I think. It's a gripping story. Uh, and it is so, I think, because trials by their nature uh, are uh, gripping because they're, they're usually dramatic um, and they, uh, they involve colorful characters. And of course, we don't know what the, the end of the trial, the end of the story uh, is going to be while we're uh, witnessing it. Uh, and, uh, and so in the midst of all this, I kept thinking to myself, this is a good story. This is a really good story. Um, and it had wonderful characters. Uh, I think one of the reasons many trials are good stories is because they have uh, a plodding, uh, straightforward, determined, fierce prosecutor who's going after the, who he or she thinks is the criminal. And at the same time, the trial will have a colorful defense attorney who's, who bobs and weaves and uh, um, uses his or her imagination to, to uh, try to get, you know, the accused a, a fair trial and try, try to get the accused off, of course. And then you have the characters of dueling uh, pathologists. One pathologist uh, in a typical trial will say, well, the victim died by poisoning. And then the other pathologist will say, no, no, didn't happen that way at all died from an infection in his toe. And so we have, this, we have that in this trial. We have these dueling pathologists who, who come to totally different conclusions in their uh, studying the autopsy results. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, it's a good story. That's a, probably the easiest to, way to summarize that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned um, having the court records because that was one of my questions. It's like, I'm assuming you had access to the transcripts that or you have the best memory in the world. because <laughs> It's all right there, you know. Well, that's benefit of the transcripts. And something I learned in this process, the whole thing was really educational. Uh, something I learned was that transcripts are not automatically available. And transcripts are owned by the private individuals who uh, are contracted to do the court recording. So you have to approach the stenographer in order to get access to any transcripts from a trial. Yes. 
One of the things that you mentioned several times in the trial, and I remember this from when I sat on the jury, um, which was probably like maybe four or five years after the CSI shows debuted. Yes. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was that it's not like in the movies. Um, <laughs> what in particular struck you as being so different? well, in the movies, uh, uh, the prosecutor will stand and suddenly say, we submit this evidence and just flips it out and suddenly it is, it is in play. Uh, whereas in a trial, it's, uh, you have to go through several procedures uh, and, and the evidence uh, The, the, the defense may may say, well, this is not appropriate evidence, and that we, you know, we dispute that it should be introduced. And when it is introduced, it's it's a very complex um, procedure. For instance, photos. When they introduce photos in this instance, um, you would think that any number of photos would be allowed to be submitted, but the judge only allows certain photos to be submitted and he does not allow several photos of the same thing from different angles to be submitted unless there's a good reason. Uh, so these are all in, of course, our rules of evidence today that have you know, been produced over the years and over generations of jury trials. Um, Most of us are familiar with the, the term Miranda rights, and the Miranda rights uh, involve what evidence can be submitted from what the accused has said at different times in this or her apprehension. And so it, I was surprised at the introduction of evidence. I was surprised at the care that is taken to protect certain information. And I was surprised for the number of times the judge would say, well, we reached a juncture. I want the jury to leave the courtroom so that we can discuss whether thus and such can be introduced or thus and such can be said or not said. Mm -hmm. I, I remember from my time on a jury being surprised just how often we left the room because, you know, you see this on TV, you see it on, you know, Law and Order, whatever. The art, you know, they're having big, passionate debates and arguments about evidence being presented or objection this or objection that. But any time there was any kind of an argument that seemed to come up, our judge was like, nope, jury's out. Let's figure this out. And that was Yes. surprising to me. <laughs> yes, in fact, uh, I, if, if uh, any of our listeners ever land on the jury, I would suggest that uh, they try to look at the transcript afterward because there is a lot that takes place when they are indeed out of the room. And then uh, beyond that, I also um, use, as, and as part of the transcript, uh, sessions between the lawyers Uh, and the judge in the judge's chambers. And those take place before, before uh, the session begins in the morning sometimes. Uh, they occurred at other times uh, um, totally out of the court. They're in the judge's chambers and they're discussions on matters of law, uh, the discussions on, on what the judge will allow to be used and not used. And there are sessions in which the judge gives his opinion. Uh, he, he will take arguments from both sides on an issue. So the prosecutor will say, uh, uh, Your Honor, I don't think this piece of evidence should be allowed for these reasons. And he'll cite various uh, pieces of law. And the defense attorney will say, well, our argument is that these should be presented because of these pieces of law. And then the judge will have uh, his 
clerks apparently do some quick research on the law and uh, he'll have to make a decision and he'll cite law as well and uh, decide on the spot what what law applies and how it does apply. And all of that takes place outside of the courtroom and outside the hearing of the jurors, but it still takes place. And it's reassuring, very reassuring that there's great structure here and there's great uh, appreciation of structure of our law. And of course, none of that ever appears in a TV show or in a movie. You seem to enjoy a lot of access to everybody involved in the trial. Like you mentioned, you had conversations with the lawyers and the judges and the clerks. Do you think that that you'd have that same access in a larger city or was this because it was a small town courthouse and and trial? Well, that's a good question. And I had not thought about it, but I, I think I think we probably touched something there. The fact that it was in a small town and all of the jurors came from that small town, I think probably did add to the likelihood that I could get close to these various uh, players, so to speak. Um, but they added a great deal to the story, to, to the book itself. Uh, that is, I had some wonderful conversations with the parents of uh, the man accused of manslaughter. Uh, they're charming people, lovely country people, uh, farm people, and I had grown up on farms and grown up in small towns, so I could connect with them very quickly. And they were very sweet, very compelling people. Uh, I had a long conversation with the accused uh, brother, and uh, I, in fact, kept in touch with him after the trial and run into him from time to time. I had uh, quite passionate uh, discussions, passionate on their part for obvious reasons, uh, with the uh, siblings, the brother and sister of the woman who, who had died uh, and um, who was the center of, of, of the trial of the, the crime that the man was accused of. And it was very, very heartwarming to, to talk with them, speak with them. And I talked with other people in Cooperstown and in the area and the was filling lots of gaps and describe what Cooperstown is like and what lunch in the Cooperstown Diner, which has, I think, three tables and seven bar stools. And that's one of the strengths of the book, that this is small town justice in America. Right, right. So having these conversations with basically the families of the victim of the accused, was it hard not to take sides? Not really, because I could feel the compassion on both sides. Uh, the mother of the accused was was a, 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 almost a spiritual soul, and uh, she just seemed to love everybody. And she was very troubled by uh, what her son had been accused of, but she was equally as troubled, I think, by what had happened to uh, the woman who had been her daughter-in-law and what was happening to the children of this couple, and um, she, she, was, um, she was a lovely person to be near, very inspiring, and I think she probably inspired a lot of people in her life. So we haven't really talked about the two people at the center of this. This is Timothy Beckingham and Joanne Beckingham, and ultimately Timothy was convicted of manslaughter. What was it like there on the day when the verdict was announced? I go into quite a bit of detail in the book. It, it was such an overwhelming feeling. It was as if we had suddenly been frozen, frozen solid. And 
someone struck that frozen image with a hammer and it shattered. The, the verdict, the one word guilty just was that hammer. It, it's, it just, it's so hard to describe. It just is it's overwhelming in its impact. But at the same time, I, I was conscious that since I was writing the book, I wanted to observe and describe as much as I could uh, the different players, how the parents reacted, how the prisoner reacted, how the uh, defense attorney reacted. It, it's, it's quite a moment. I, I don't think there's anything quite like it anywhere else. What effect do you think watching this trial and going through that experience and having those conversations had on you? Well, it certainly made me more respectful of the trial jury as an American institution. And of course, we all know our various institutions are under siege these days. I had not given much thought to the value of the institution. Uh, my conversations with Ray Kelly, who was the defense attorney, he, he loves the institution of the jury trial and he philosophizes about it. And he does in the book and he does in real life uh, outside the court. He, he loves the system, he loves the country, and he talks about the, the institution of the American trial jury in very reverential terms. So I think it affected me in that sense. Another sense that I was affected was that sitting through all of it and then reading the transcript again and again and again, I came to appreciate much more the fact that we may think that we know something, but later we may decide otherwise, and later again we may decide otherwise, and later again we may decide that we can't really decide. Uh, not many of our decisions are given that much time. And of course, in rereading the transcript, I was giving time again and again to the questions raised in the trial. I think Kelly did a very good job, the defense attorney, a very good job of raising questions that would stay with us, raising issues in a way that provokes further thought. And that's his job. I think he did it superbly, and it certainly had that sort of impact on me. I, I remember thinking after my own stint as a juror, and, you know, and just reading cases and reading trials as, as personal interest, just how inexact a science this is. Yes, it is. To the extent that the jury trial system has flaws, uh, they really are the flaws of humanity. I think judges and lawyers will be quick to observe that the trial does not always reach the truth. And the truth, of course, is extremely elusive. It's difficult to imagine something that we would use in its place. I should say, I don't mean that as a judgment, as an observation. I think that perhaps we don't have enough education as individuals as to exactly how our judicial system works and what the ins and outs of it are. Yes, it's probably true. Have you had contact with the families or heard from them since the book came out? A couple of members of the family, of, of Mr. Beckham's family, wrote to me, and they were uneasy with the book, but they had not read the book. They simply didn't want any publicity at all. And they assumed that the book would be slanderous or accusatory, uh, but they hadn't read the book. 
because it's really a very gentle book, which, which uh, does not, as you pointed out earlier, does not attack one side or the other. It doesn't sensationalize anything. Uh, and it, it, it gives great respect to all the members involved. I, the, the parents have moved away, unfortunately. Um, I've sent copies of the book to them. As I said, I did run into the brother of uh, Tim, the accused, and uh, who was found guilty. And I, uh, the brother worked in um, at the Otisaga Hotel in Cooperstown, and I often am at the hotel for various functions, and and uh, always had a chat with him whenever I saw him. He was uh, had a lovely quote in the book. He had grown up on the Beckingham farm, and he loved farming. And of course, so many farms have gone bankrupt and out of business in our times. And he, he said uh, he had a million dollars. He would uh, go into farming and until it all wasted away because he loved farming so much. So he was a very nice chap. You have prepared a reading for us. Could I ask you to do that now? And tell us yes. what you're reading and give us some context. Uh, first, I'm going to read uh, from the introduction. And then lastly, I will read uh, something about uh, the son of uh, Tim Beckingham and um, his wife. Uh, so first of all, the, uh, from the introduction, over 40 years ago, Sybil Bedford wrote The Best We Can Do also published as The Trial of Dr. Adams. Two of its elements captivate me, the masterful defense and the British institution of justice. And that process ground inexorably like a machine toward a victim, a verdict, which would send a man to the gallows. And yet the same process provided him with every protection from guilt unproven. Reporters swarmed like hornets over the proceedings, their salacious accounts made Dr. Adams as well known in Britain as the prime minister. The courtroom, the Old Bailey, was already the most famous in the Western world. The judge and the lawyers were also prominent. They became more so and titled, if not already, as years passed. By contrast, those who conduct the trial in this book in Cooperstown have names you do not know. People who live a block from the courthouse are unaware of the trial. The courthouse is obscure. The man on trial is, if we deal in cruel reality, a mere cipher, one of thousands tried for manslaughter each year in America. The testimony shines Klieg lights on him for a few hours, but this is for only a tiny audience, a mere handful of souls and probably no legal historians will remember it. If jurors in this trial feel pressure, they can hardly blame crowds or cameras. There are none. Only a few spectators are sprinkled around the gallery. Only one reporter attends. Yet, and yet this trial is as important to Americans as Dr. Adams' trial was to the British for a simple reason. It is what any of us might hope for and ideally expect in any court in America if ever we are tried for a serious crime. I have written this in the present tense to remind readers that this is an account of our living, breathing, 
ever-present system of justice. Cooperstown builds itself as America's most perfect village. It is what millions with their hometown wish their hometowns could be. Their baseball heroes are enshrined in the Hall of Fame near the statue of the Sandlot Kid and Abner Doubleday Field. Two other museums here commemorate America's folk and native art, its buildings, tools, equipment of old. Among Cooperstown residents are heirs of two great fortunes. One fortune came from Singer Sewing Machines, the other from Anheuser-Busch. What is more American than sewing machines and beer? In some years, 400,000 people make the pilgrimage to the hall. Thousands of teens come to play ball in camps and tour the museum and dream of their plaques on those hollowed walls. Baseball's celebrities visit, naturally, but so do stars of politics, movies, television, all of this makes Cooperstown an ideal place to witness a chapter in another American institution, the jury trial. Years ago, a conductor friend perched me on a stool between the violins and violas of his symphony orchestra during rehearsal. When they lit into their music, I clung to the stool to keep from being swept aloft. In this trial, I sat among the players. Like the musicians, they took me prisoner with their performances. The trial was nothing special, and that makes it precious beyond treasure. Author John Mortimer's famous barrister, Horace, Horace Rumpel, explains why he preferred defending criminals down at the Old Bailey. If we watch huge companies sue each other in another court, we will, quote, move into a world of fantasy and make believe, he warned. But if you go down to the Old Bailey, you'll find that all life is there, the real world with all its sins, mistakes, and occasional beauty and good behavior. We find good measures of all he promised in our trial in Cooperstown. Quote, Mr. Morgan, you tell me you're a writer. Let them know what you witnessed here this week. Let the people know what you witnessed here. With these words, Ray Kelly, the attorney who defended, dispatched me from the courtroom at the end of the trial. And outside, I paused and took in the lights of the building. Let the people know what you witnessed. Here is what I witnessed, what transpired here, how they were all in on it. They being the lawyers, the jury, and especially the judge with his endless admonitions and rulings. People deserve to know because they will ultimately determine if what transpired here will be allowed in future trials. Tom, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. But lovely to be with you, Crystal. Tom Morgan's book, Trial in Cooperstown, is available now. You'll find links to the book on our website at wskg.org. 
Coming up on the next program, I talk with Julie Zigafoos. She's an author, an artist, and a naturalist. And she joins me to talk about nature, birds, and the famous blue jay she raised and wrote about in her book, Saving Jemima, Life and Love with a Hard Luck Jay. It's a fun interview and a really wonderful book. You can listen to Off the Page anytime you want. You'll find all the episodes on our website, or you can subscribe to the podcast, which features longer interviews with many of our authors. Find out more on our website at wskg.org. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we go Off the Page. <laughs>